Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Bikes and Big Ideas is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Today we are talking with Ibis Cycles founder Scott Nickel about the brand new Ripmo 2, the rest of the current Ibis lineup, Scott's background in the early and awesome days of mountain biking, the history and trajectory of Ibis, and a whole lot more. When it comes to mountain biking, Scott has truly seen it all, and in this conversation, he and I managed to touch on a whole lot of the history and the future of mountain biking, and so with that, let's get to it. I hear you guys have a new bike coming out that you just announced, um, I don't know, something like 48 hours ago. Yeah, 49 hours and 46 minutes ago, to be exact, from this the time of this recording. Yeah, we just launched the, the second version of the RIPMO, uh, which was probably, I think we launched that a couple of years ago, the original RIPMO, and it became our biggest selling bike ever uh, after we launched it. It's a 29er with 100 and... It had 145 millimeters of rear travel, and the first version, this one, just we just bumped it up two millimeters to 147, and 160 millimeter front fork. Anyway, it's sort of our enduro sled. It's the one that several members of our enduro race team, our EWS team, Enduro World Series, race on. And in fact, this updated version of the Ripmo, the Ripmo 2, is a bike that. Uh, Robin Walner, our, the head of our Enduro team, raced on all last year secretly. Uh, we had we'd built a bike that he was asking for, and um, a lot of our prototypes hide in plain sight. It's pretty interesting. We will, so we painted that one like a regular Ripmo, and it's hard to tell them apart. But we've, over the last few years, it's kind of funny. Last year, the, the Ripley version 4 came out, and we painted that one like a Ripmo because they look somewhat similar and we that that way we can ride it around santa cruz and and other places in plain sight and do some really good testing on it uh without having to uh you know do it under the cloak of darkness or something like that so uh it's been a it's been a fun project uh over the years and sometimes we'll paint them like one when we were testing the ripmo at first it was a new kind of style of bike. It didn't have the cross brace that the Mojos have. Um, and we <laughs> we used black electrical tape and painted it a Yeti color and then wrote Yeti in black electrical tape and <laughs> rode it around. <laughs> I have a funny picture of that one. Anyway, we have a lot of fun uh, hiding the bikes, and uh, but at the same time, you know, getting lots of good testing in. So... You've already described this uh, Ripmo 2 and the Ripmo as your enduro sled, but let's talk a little bit more about some of the specific changes and like why there's a Ripmo 2, right? Did it start with you guys had a bike and you said, this is really good. Is there things we could do to make it better? Or 
were there specific things that your riders were asking for? Um, how did how did this evolution come about? Why did it come about? Yeah, so we use our enduro race team as uh, a test bed, obviously for these types of products. And as I mentioned, Robin Walner had asked for a little slacker head angle on his on his Ritmo that he was racing. So one of the ways you can do that, of course, is just put an angle set in there and slacken it out a degree. And he was, he, so he did that and liked it. And that that's when we started to think more seriously about uh, making the bike a little bit slacker. You know, one of the, it's easy to go, uh, just keep going longer and slacker, but at some point, there's a diminishing return and you you start to reach a much smaller percentage of the people that can actually ride this bike. So we're trying to build a bike that that the most people can ride and enjoy. You know, we've got we got lots of different bikes in our lineup, but if we're talking about a, a medium to long travel 29er, like I said, enduro style bike, the Ritmo is the one and a couple of the other things that we did to the bike is we made it coil compatible. That was something else that Robin was asking for. He he wanted to run a coil shock on it. A lot of people really like the feel of a coil. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we made we changed the kinematics of the bike to accept a coil shock. And those were two pretty big changes that required entirely new molds for the bike. It wasn't something we could just make a small running change to. So that necessitated the uh, the change to the Ritmo 2. And there, we'd, we'd refined a couple of other things. We added a touch of stiffness to the rear triangle and changed a, a couple of other small things. We refined the geometry a bit, a little tiny bit more reach and, and a few things like that. And so, you know, the, the, the original Ritmo is still a great bike and a number of people have contacted me in the last couple of days say, hey, I, I really like the geometry of the original Ritmo. Can I still get one? And we we do have a good supply of them that we keep for uh, warranty purposes for when somebody crashes one of them or something like that. And, um, you know, this this bike is certainly an evolution of that first one, but it hasn't rendered that one obsolete, I would say. It's still a very viable bike. Yep. I was actually just riding mine on Tuesday, just after the release of the of the Ritmo 2. I was riding my original Ritmo and just thinking what a fantastic bike it was. But people after, okay, another just another uh, bit of the story is that we did come out with the Ritmo AF, the aluminum frame Ritmo yeah. last year. And that did have this this uh, newer geometry and kinematics that that the Ritmo Two has, and the response to that bike was just was phenomenal. Not only because it was a, a good price point bike for us, but the riding, uh, the way you, people really really enjoyed the ride of the bike, and they embraced the new geometry. And when when we saw that happen, we knew it was the right thing to do to go ahead and change. Uh, the Ritmo into the Ritmo 2. Let's talk a little bit about the coil shock compatibility. This certainly seems to be a bit of a general trend we're seeing with companies making or offering bikes that are coil compatible, especially on their longer 
travel trailer enduro bikes. Do you think that we will continue to see this demand for an interest in coil shocks? Or do you think maybe like this might just be this point in time and then the pendulum might swing back? I'm not really sure I can answer that question. I, I, the coils, coils are amazing. You know, the, the suppleness of a coil is just, it's, wow, the air shocks have made tremendous advances in the last years and they're great. You still can't quite get that, that amazing suppleness of the, of the coil, the feel of the, of the coil is still a bit elusive to air shocks. So I think that Probably there will even even if air shocks continue to to improve, which they are, I think you're still going to see some coil adherence out there. People who really just want to have that that feel to the bike. So I, th- I think it'll stay around. It may it we may be seeing a bit of a renaissance of the coil now, and it may, it may diminish in the future. I don't really have a crystal ball to to look at that. But I do know that a lot of people are asking for it now that weren't a couple of years ago. It's, so it's definitely having its moment in the sun right now. Let's talk then about locating this Ripmo 2 and the Ripmo AF in the current lineup. If you want to just highlight certain models or if you just want to walk us through um, sort of the current offerings. But I think it would be interesting just to hear how you talk about Ibis's current lineup. So with the, um, well, let's start at the at the bigger travel end of the spectrum. So basically, we've got the Ripmo 29er enduro bike, and we've got the HD5, which is a 27.5 bike. Both bikes are fairly equally capable, I would say. Half of our enduro team rides the HD5, half of them ride the Ripmo. So it's a matter of personal preference if you like the 27.5 wheels versus the 29-inch wheels. Again, they're 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 relatively uh, comparable in what they can do. The uh, HD5 has a little more front travel. Uh, it's got a uh, 170 front and 153 rear. And uh, again, the Ritmo has 147 rear and 160 front. So the bigger wheels uh, buy you a little bit of extra. Um, you can get by with less travel with a bigger wheel and have a similar feeling bike. So, so that's why the H, you know, the 27.5 bikes have a little bit more travel. So, so that's so we've got the Ritmo and the HD5 and. Also, we've got the Ritmo AF, which is our aluminum-framed Ritmo, virtually identical geometry to the new Ritmo 2. And that's a bike that we, it's the first metal bike we've built in 20 years. And it is uh, a bike that starts it, for the complete bike, starts at $3,000, $29.99. And it has been a phenomenal success. And we've been really, really happy with how that went. And again, like I mentioned, that was uh, the genesis of the Ritmo 2 was the success of the the geometry and kinematics on the AF yep. that, that came out last year. So th- we have three kind of bigger bigger travel bikes in our lineup. We don't have a downhill bike. We don't have, you know, a bike with more more travel than than those. And then we move down into the more of the trail bike 
side of things, and that's where the Ripley comes in. It's a 29-inch bike, and it's got 120 mils of rear travel, 130 in the front. And it, I think, probably has even eclipsed the sales of the Ripmo. It's been a phenomenal bike. We've we've essentially never caught up. It's been out for almost a year now. It came out in the end of April last year, and immediately we the the back orders were just astonishing to me. And so that's that's been, I would say, our our most successful bike to date. Although looking at the order quantity of the Ritmo twos that came in over the last two days, uh, the the it might it might put the uh, Ripley into position number two pretty soon. I I, I was looking at our delivery uh, estimates this morning, and already some of the sizes and colors of the Ritmo two are out to August delivery. Believe it or not. Um, yeah, it's, so it's been a phenomenal, uh, response to that bike. So anyway, back to the Ripley, uh, it is, um, accompanied by the Mojo three, which is 130 mil rear travel, 140 front 27, five bike. So you've, you've, once again, you got the Ripmo and the Mojo HD five on the bigger travel side with two different wheel sizes. Then you move down to the trail bike category, the Ripley and the Mojo three, in that uh, shorter travel category, then uh, we have a, a hardtail called the DV9, and it's a it's a neat bike. It's it's a a bike that was sort of built with high school uh, Nike racing kids in mind. Uh, my partner Hans, his his daughter Lily raced all through high school, and uh, Hans became super involved in Nike and. He wanted to build a bike that was something that a that a high school kid could afford that wasn't outrageously expensive. So, the DV9 is a carbon frame, and it's the frame costs nine hundred ninety nine dollars. It's a it's a phenomenal value. It's a it's a great bike, and and so that the the DV9 is sort of the DV is for development, and it's a twenty er and so that's sort of where that name came from. And again, great price. Uh, complete bikes around twenty five hundred to start, but the frame at nine ninety nine is is a great bargain in our lineup. And then the the other bike in our lineup is the Haka MX, and that is a uh, either twenty seven five or seven hundred C gravel cross bike, if you will, adventure bike. Um, I was thinking about it this morning. We've actually been making bikes like this seven hundred C adventure bikes with big tire clearance. The first one I built was in 1983. So we've been doing this kind of stuff for a long, long time. That bike has been a a really big success for us, a really big surprise, which is, which has been, been really nice to see. Uh, I think, I think we all know the gravel segment is having its moment right now, but um, previously this was more of a cross bike uh, but we added even more clearance to it and and 27.5 wheel capability, and it just add, just made the bike so so incredibly versatile. You know, it's one of those one of those quote unquote quiver killers. My road bike is just completely covered with cobwebs right now because I just ride my Haka on the road. Huh. I have two sets of wheels for it, and uh, you know, smaller tires and bigger tires, and just just pop them back and forth depending on what kind of a ride I'm doing. Yeah. Interesting. So that's that's the lineup. We're going to talk a bit more about Ibis's history in a second here, but um, 
It's interesting that the Ritmo AF is the only non-carbon bike in the lineup. I've got to think this has you all at least talking internally or thinking about potentially expanding some offerings, you know, in terms of non-carbon offerings. That's not a wild hunch on my end, is it? No, no, that's definitely something that we're that we're looking at. I think we the we approach a lot of our product development w- from the standpoint of what what's the the obvious what are the obvious gaps in our lineup? Yeah. And 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 we try to we try to fill those. And you know, we we don't we don't talk about what we're what we're working on in the future, but it's pretty easy for people to look back. We have a there's a place on our webpage called Past Models, and you can look at all the bikes that we've had for the last 12, 15 years. And you can look at that evolution. And probably if you just look at that page and you look at the current lineup, you can you can do a decent job of guessing what we're working on for the future. And a lot of people do that, you know, in the forums, it's hilarious online, just reading what people <laughs> think that, uh, think we've got coming down the pipe. Some of it very, very accurate, <laughs> like scarily accurate, and some of it way out in left field huh. somewhere. <laughs> Speaking of past bikes, um, we had a bike called the Tranny. Yeah. The suitcase bike. Yeah. What What's the state of uh, how we feel? And we've been talking about trends a little bit, coil shocks, you know, et cetera. But um, what are, where are we at with suitcase bikes these days? That was a really really neat bike, and the the original the original idea behind that one there was there was a twenty six inch version and then later a twenty nine inch version, and it was it was first produced back when single speeding. Another thing that you know is had has had its moment. Yeah, when single speeding was really really popular, and we wanted to build a hardtail that had single speed capability, and what we didn't want to just do an eccentric bottom bracket because there's some there's been some issues with those, and adjustable dropouts kind of have always been kludgy and not really been part of what we would consider the ibis aesthetic on the bike. We're pretty concerned about how our how our bikes look. We we want to make the the most beautiful bikes that we can. And so all of these little details we we pay a tremendous amount of attention to. So the tranny actually ended up with a uh, a sliding chainstay uh, so that we could adjust the length of the chainstay and make it single speed compatible without using an eccentric or a sliding dropout or uh, chain tensioner. And it was an elegant solution. And in order to have it slide, we had to have the seat stay able to to pivot at the top uh, when you did slide it. So it by accident became a travel bike, a bike that you could pull apart and put into a small suitcase and not pay airline fees when you did travel with it or fit into the back of a small plane, for example, things like that. Uh, in the at the end of the day, the bike didn't really sell that well, and I don't really know why that was. Uh, it was it was a really cool bike, but it it was a difficult bike to produce, and we just eventually had decided that we'd go with a more conventional hardtail, and that's when we came out with the the DV9. 
And also we wanted to, to bring the price point down. The the bike, as I said, was very difficult to produce and kind of kind of expensive. So we jettisoned that one. But be, before we did, uh, we'll go into another little trend. We, um, we actually were able to build a different rear end for the bike uh, and can make it into a fat bike. And so we called that one the trans fat. And... <laughs> That that was a, a fairly short-lived bike in our product lineup, but it was. It, I have one uh, from my house up in Tahoe, and it's. I ride it every day up there. Huh. Um, I just actually I ride it over to the. Um, we have a Nordic Center right by our house, so I just ride it to the Nordic Center and then go, go for a <clears throat> nerd out on the on the skinny skis for an <laughs> hour or two. But um, but anyway, yeah. So the trans fat was another clever little little um <clears throat> addition we made to the to that tranny bike good time to maybe ask you what is your personal favorite name of an ibis bike ever related question if i can get you to share it do you have a favorite name that you didn't have the courage to actually take the name to market <laughs> <laughs> um so Ibis V1, I'll call it the first 20 years from 81 to 2001. Yeah. We were a little more risque with our names <laughs> and our project. You know, we had the hand job on the, uh, well, on the Hakalugi, you know, that, that's another, that was one of my favorite, favorite, uh, favorite names. I would say the Hakalugi. Um, I'll give you a quick little, little background about that name. So back I remember I described us building big clearance bikes starting in 1983. So there was a tire called the Haka Polita back then that was, uh, it's a Finnish uh, tire, I believe. And uh, it was a nice, I don't know, it was something, a 40, 40 or 45C, 700C tire. Um, and so that was that was a, a tire that we used on some of the bikes that we built back then. And when when we decided to come out with a an actual model and not just do one off bikes um, of these adventure bikes, I was cu- trying to come up with a name. And and then the the Hakalugi came up. And <laughs> just you know, it was like um, sounds pretty good. And it's spelled like the first few letters of the Haka Polita tire. That was a good one. Um, of course, the hand job, which is our cable stop that was rendered useless um, by by V brakes and then, of course, by disc brakes. Uh, that was another good one. So we we made made those into uh, bottle openers eventually, huh. and uh, so we could we could still have the the hand job in our lineup. And actually, if you look at the the Haka, the current Haka MX, it it has it as a as a fender mount on the on the back of the bike <laughs> although in the uh, we're more pc now so we don't call it a hand job uh-huh. all right <laughs> that, was, that was a good answer that was a better answer to my question than i thought i might get so uh, <laughs> and there's a few more out there too names that uh probably are good that are escaping me right now <laughs> at one point bicycling did a did an article on the 20 funniest product names in the bike industry and we had something like seven or nine of them, I think. It's pretty good. Yeah, it was back in the 90s. <laughs> pretty good. Back to talking a bit about the current lineup, I'm curious to hear what two bikes in the IBIS lineup 
do you guys get the biggest questions that would go something like this? You get an email or a phone call from someone and they're like, I've been up the past three nights straight. I have not slept because I cannot decide whether I want to go with this bike in the Ibis lineup or this other bike. Definitely. It's the, the Ripley, Ripley versus the Ripmo. Those, those bikes are, are the ones that, that people spend the most time hand wringing about. And for good reason, you know, they're both, they're both phenomenally capable bikes. I do think that a lot of people over bike, mm-hmm. a lot of people who don't really need a Ripmo, they buy a Ripmo when they would probably be better served by buying a Ripley. Another thing I get a lot of people asking about is I want to put a 36 fork on my on my Ripley and bump the travel up. And to that I just say just buy a Ripmo. Don't don't bother putting that fork on the on the Ripley because the Ripmo and the Ripley frames weigh the same. And when you start just adding weight onto the Ripley you just get a heavier bike with, that's not as capable as the Ripmo is. Uh, they both climb great, and so there's no, not really an advantage to putting a heavy fork on the Ripley. Keep it, keep it light and nimble and fast and fun, and for the big huck sessions, get yourself a Ripmo. Let's talk a bit about your own personal history with bikes and the bike industry before starting Ibis, when did you get the bike bug? I actually, on our website, buried deep somewhere, you can see a, a regular eight millimeter movie of the first time I ever pedaled a bike by myself. And uh, it's pretty funny seeing all these cars from the 1950s in there. It was like 1959 or 1960, I think, something like that. So that's that's where, uh, where my bug started was at age five. Hmm. Here's a, a kind of a fun story about my first 26-inch balloon tire bike. Uh, when I was about, I think, 12 years old, something like that, I had a paper route. And I was delivering papers one day, and one of my I saw that one of my neighbors had a, uh, a really cool uh, 1949 Schwinn um, balloon tire bike and, uh, like a, an Excelsior. And I saw that bike and I just thought, man, that thing is really cool. So my mom had a bike that she never rode. And so I got a, a, a wild idea to, to take my mom's bike down to this neighbor's house and ask him if he'd trade it for that balloon tire bike. And he did. He, I said, Hey, your wife needs a bike. She doesn't have one. How about we just trade, you get this bike for your wife and uh, I'll take that balloon tire bike. Uh, my mom did find out about that a few weeks ago or a few weeks later, and uh, she wasn't very happy about it. Um, so about 15 years later, I built her a custom Ibis and she finally forgave me for doing that. <laughs> but anyway, that was my first my first uh, fat tire bike and when I was 11 years old. And I became really good at riding wheelies on it. I could do like figure eight wheelies inside the basketball court at my high school and and I could, I could, you know, ride wheelies and throw newspapers at the same time and stuff like that. So I, I became a, I, I, w- I was, I was pretty, pretty good on the bike at that point and just having fun riding around the walnut orchards and things like that. 
And I didn't put gears on on bikes until later in the 70s. And that's when I started converting those bikes, the old Schwinn's and things like that. Uh, I would braze on cantilevers and put a, a TA triple crank on them and make them into a rudimentary uh, mountain bike um, for for bombing around. Uh, I was living up in Mendocino, California by then, right after I'd graduated from, from college. And uh, so I I was sort of doing some simultaneous evolution with the guys in Marin and in the South Bay and in Crested Butte and places like that. And I got wind of uh, the stuff that Joe Breeze and Charlie Kelly and Gary Fisher were doing down in Marin and ended up going out in 1980, going on a road trip with those guys out to Colorado and uh, to Crested Butte to the, uh, the, you know, we did that Pearl Pass thing for, for many, many, many years. And so when we were when we were riding out there, I was an outsider. I was this 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 kid from Mendocino. They'd never, they you know didn't know me and hadn't ridden with me or anything like that. And they were they were pretty a pretty tight clique, you know, the Marin crew. And um, I was lucky enough that having learned to do those wheelies and things like that, uh, I was and I was also had was a fairly fit rider. Those guys were all you know Cat One roadies yeah. and very very strong. And, um, <clears throat> but I had, I had the, the benefit of being able to, you know, ride over big logs and do wheelies and stuff like that. And so they actually accepted me into, into their little click pretty readily, which was, I think my, my, a real, you know, it was, that was sort of a life-changing, uh, moment for me, uh, uh, getting, you know, getting accepted with those guys and becoming really good friends with them. And uh, so that winter, after I went to Crested Butte with them, I ended up apprenticing with uh, Joe Breeze in his shop in Mill Valley and also with Charlie Cunningham in his shop in Fairfax. And so I learned uh, frame building from those guys and then, and then hung up my shingle in uh, April of uh, 1981 and started building my bikes. And, uh, and I just... Uh, you know, fast forward 39 years, here we are, man. <laughs> that's the, that's the brief. No, I love it. It's, it's fantastic. Um, give me your favorite Crested Butte memory. Oh man. Um, there's so many, we went out there every, every year, you know, it may be the early days of, of, uh, we would, so the Pearl Pass tour was something that was, I think first, happened in 1977 or 78 and a couple guys from Crested Butte rode over to the Jerome Hotel. You know, it's a legendary story. Uh, they rode over to the Jerome Hotel over Pearl Pass on rigid, uh, you know, balloon tire bikes. Um, and it was uh, then I think the the guys in Marin caught wind of it and they went out there in, I think, 79. And 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 then, like I mentioned, I went out there in 1980 with them. But yeah, we used to go camping up at 11, 12,000 feet. Uh, Pearl Pass itself, the Pearl, the ride over to Aspen went over Pearl Pass, which is 12,700. And I can just remember back in back in the days, it was always done in September. We would we would ride over that and camp out. And you know, we and after a couple of years of it, there was like a hundred plus people camping. Um, and it, it just, it was just, 
an amazing, amazing time. And friends I made back there, I'm still in contact with, with daily, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's that, that's probably my favorite memory was, was those, those camping trips when we rode over to, uh, over to Aspen and then we, we'd take a bus back the next day. Yeah, that was, 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 those were good times. (laughs) Man, we could go a long time. I mean, this, you've just, (laughs) it's like, you've got the richest history, right? I mean, and you know, when you start talking about 1980 and hanging with Gary Fisher and the, and the rest of the group, um, that's about as good as it gets. Um, you've, you've sort of seen it all. I guess one more note on this. I mean, as a generalization, I'd be curious to hear what you liked most about those early days of the mountain bike scene or industry, and maybe what you like most about the current scene and industry, right? Seems to me there's probably things that are great about you know, the 1980s and things that you really like about what's happening today. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. The, it was the, those days the, I'll never forget them. They were, they were fantastic. The, um, the camaraderie that all of us had, um, you know, there was, uh, also fat chance was coming on, on the East coast and we had a wonderful, wonderful, um, relationship with those guys and, uh, and a fun little rivalry too. We'd send <clears throat> back when it's back when Gary, uh, Helfrich was working at, at fat chance for a little bit. And then of course he started, uh, Merlin after, after that in the, in the late, late mid to late eighties. Um, and we just had a lot of fun sending stuff, uh, back and forth across, across the country. Um, they would throw a bike in front of a train and, you know, <laughs> smash it to hell and then send it to us freight collect or something like that. And, um, you know, we'd reciprocate with some nasty stuff that we'd send back from here. But the, the those, the, the t- you know, they were a li- times were a little less serious and a little more fun. We had more, we had more time to hang out with each other. You know, all those trips I mentioned to Crested Butte. Um, I mean, I remember the first time I met Helfrich, he, uh, he, it was when the Fat Chance guys came out to Crested Butte and they rented a gigantic Cadillac. And um, they drove up to the registration area of the Fat Tire um, week that we were, Fat Tire Festival we had around uh, in Crested Butte. And uh, I remember Gary got out of the car and just just jumped up on the rear hood and walked up onto the onto the roof of the car and they had put a roof rack on it and just like wow what is this guy doing <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> you know the guy who's the the um, Chris Chance and Ron Andrews were kind of looking at him it's like well I guess we signed the damage waiver on that car didn't we. Um, later, later Ron was driving it around the, uh, Ron Andrews is a guy who worked at, uh, he's now King cage, the guy who makes the titanium and stainless steel, uh, water bottle cages, uh, Ron lives in, in Durango, but he was an early employee of fat chance. And he, he did, uh, he did guest appearances out at Ibis and he came out and did stuff for us every year. So he, he worked at both companies for a number of years, but anyway, when we first met Ron, he was driving. He uh, it was that same trip where we met Gary uh, in the Cadillac. They were driving. Uh, Ron was just out farting around on the Cadillac one day out on the dirt roads of Crested Butte, and he rolled it, if you can believe that. 
and uh, he called Hertz to to let him know that there was a problem with the car. And Hertz, the guys at Hertz said, "Well, what's wrong with the car?" And he said, "It fell over." <laughs> and they brought him a, they they brought him a new car. So so some of the things I missed are those fun carefree days and those those times of uh, you know getting to know each other. And I don't think any of us quite have the the time now to go go do those long fun trips like we used to so i i I do miss that but but um i don't miss rigid 26 inch wheels i can tell you that i've recent recently built up a couple of uh bikes that we made in the 90s um our our bow tie which was the uh the uh, pivotless titanium bike that had five inches of rear wheel travel and 26 inch wheels, of course. And then I built a Mojo, which is our steel bike that we built throughout the nineties, which is just one, one of our, one of the most successful bikes we ever did. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, compared to the modern bikes, those bikes, those things are horrible to ride. <laughs> it's just, it's just like, oh man. And they were state of the art. And how could we possibly improve upon this uh-huh. back in the day? Yeah. So so yeah, I do miss some of the stuff about the old days, but boy oh boy are we in a good place for bikes right now. The 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 consumer is very 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 lucky. Um and and so are we, you know. It's it's uh the the bikes are are just phenomenal. I guess this is a little bit of the irony or the the double-edged sword. On the one hand, you are talking about how fun those early days were it just seems like there was a lot more experimentation going on in terms of all sorts of different bikes and and the like but what you just said is maybe we are just figuring out better and better through geometry and the like how a given bike rides just really really well maybe these days are less open to like wild experimentation and maybe that gives up some amount of fun in some sense, but it does mean new bikes are less likely to be just disasters. What do you think about that characterization? I think that the the early mountain bikes, you know, we we were adapting a lot of things because there was no such thing as a mountain bike and there yeah. and we had to we had to adapt parts from motorcycles and from uh, road bikes and and different different places. Um, the component manufacturers stepped up to the plate pretty fast when they saw the the uh, you know the the potential of the mountain bike. I mean, uh, Suntour was super early on the scene, and um, they would actually even the, the 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 president of Suntour would come out to Crested Butte for for the Fat Tire Week in the in the early '80s. It was pretty amazing. That he would fly all the way from Japan, uh, Mr. Junzo Kawai, and uh, they just em- they just embraced it wholeheartedly. So uh, so the the evolution started to happen pretty pretty fast, actually, to having components that were that were actually made for <clears throat> for mountain bikes and not being adapted from some other discipline. But the uh, um, I think that. The what we've seen happen in the last uh, well, let's let's I don't know if you want to call it ten or fifteen years or something like that, but um, with the there's so many incredible advancements that happened in 
um, start, you know, starting in around uh, the early 2000s with with bikes that 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 was really was the, the I think the key time, you know, we had, we had rock shocks came on the scene in 1989 or so. Right. And so we had, we started to get the front suspension and there were people farting around with rear suspensions back then, but nothing was, what was really great. And, um, that it wasn't until the, like the mid, the mid nineties or something like that, when dual suspension bikes started to get good. And then in the early two thousands, they, they really, really started to get very, very efficient. And, um, you know, the, the, the shocks got better, everything, everything got better. So, so starting in, you, you know, a lot like I said, about the last maybe 15 years, it's the, what the evolution that we've seen has been just spectacular. Everything has gotten so much better. I'm not sure if that, if that's what, you know, answering your question, but it's, but I'm just amazed at where the bikes have come in this last, uh, this last little evolutionary phase uh, er, just everything has, has improved so much. I think you mentioned you were listening to, uh, bikes and big ideas podcast that I did with Noah Bodman and David Golay. And I was kind of pushing those guys on like the golden age of mountain biking. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, maybe yeah, this, yeah. maybe this is the time to ask you sort of this question. I think Noah disliked the question a lot, but, uh, I don't know. Just what's what's your take on that? Was the golden age those early days that were so fun and maybe the bikes weren't that great? Or was the golden age, let's say you just talked about this last 15 years of improvements in components and, and bikes in general. You know, I was asking the guys like, are we just in that golden age right now where there seems to be so much good stuff, um, and a, and a wide range of good stuff. Well, I, I guess I'd like to think that we could have two golden ages at least, <laughs> or maybe more <laughs> hmm. because it was, I mean, that those early days of discovery, uh, they, yeah, that was, that was incredible. You know, that, that, that was life-changing for so many people. And, um, you know, birthing this new sport was a, uh, was just a, a monumental um, change in the in the bike industry and in a lot of people's lives, but um, I I I think uh, I do think that now maybe maybe not in 2020, but you know now being the last five years, yeah. let's say, is really is is a spectacular time to be a mountain biker, and it's related not just to the bikes themselves but where we ride them and how we ride them and what we can ride is just it's you know we're 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 really lucky um i am lucky enough to travel a lot and get to see a lot of places where people are riding mountain bikes and it's incredible what's happening all over the country and all over the world as far as access for mountain bikes. And I think, I think a lot of it, uh, you know, I think the road 
road cycling is becoming less and less attractive as more and more people are driving on the roads and more and more people are angry and more and more people are driving distracted via texting or whatever. I think that all those things are, are I, for me personally, uh, I used to ride for 10 years ago, I was 50% mountain bike and 50% road bike where I live. I have, I have phenomenal access to both, both disciplines and I'm about 98% mountain bike these days. It's completely, completely switched for me. And, and that's because trails, uh, are opening up more and more, which which may sound a little bit counterintuitive, you know, um, as as because there are definitely conflicts with uh, with different user groups yeah. um, in on public lands, but but I but I think that there are so many great um, people doing trail advocacy work and doing you know trail building and grant writing and um you know making making more places for people to to ride bikes i mean look what's happening in bentonville with the uh you know the waltons i mean they're doing they're putting you know many many tens of millions of dollars into the trail trail system down there and that's that you know walmart you know the biggest corporation in the world they want to attract the best and brightest to work for them and how one of the ways they're doing that is they're making great mountain bike trails which attract people to uh to to come down there and live in a place otherwise you wouldn't you know a lot of people wouldn't think about moving to and they've had a pretty you know they've had an amazing influx of people moving to to bentonville because of mountain bike trails and and there are places like that all over the country that are that are building trail systems that are um, making the quality of life way better for people. And so that to me is is uh, part of this golden age um, equation is, of course, the the ability to ride these amazing bikes we have in in great places. So if we've been talking a bit about the past 40 years of mountain biking and its development i certainly want to ask as somebody who again was has been part of sort of all of it what your thoughts are on sort of the next 40 years i've proven to myself that i've been a pretty bad prognosticator in the past i uh i uh, it's um you know back in I was talking about those bikes in 1995 or whatever the the Mojo hardtails like back then. It's like how could this bike possibly get any better? Yeah, yeah. And um, I and I I say that I still say that today. You know, when I look at these bikes, wow, what can we improve? Improve and there there have been some monumental changes. You know, like for example, DW Link suspension coming along, or you know, and there are other very efficient suspension systems as well. Um, the RockShock, you know, that that these things have been great monumental strides forward. But as far as things like that, um, what what we've seen in the last fifteen years or so have been incremental changes uh if you went to sleep for five years uh and looked at the at a you know at a bike from 2015 versus today uh 
dramatic, dramatic changes, but on a on a year to year um, basis, not you know the the changes haven't been that that stupendous. They they've been incremental, and so I I sort of see it continuing that way, where we'll uh, you know in in a few years we won't have any such thing as a broken chain or a flat or a broken bike or anything like that all the we're we're going to you know bikes are going to continue to improve and and those little annoyances that that we have now um are are going to change i mean i mean people don't even really carry spare inner tubes anymore you carry a plug you know and 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 um you just you plug your tire when you get a when you get a puncture in it i mean that's not a 100% foolproof but but that just as an example that's something i sure wouldn't have predicted 15 years ago um and so so yeah where where is it going to be it's uh it's it, we're just going to continue to make great um Great changes. Drivetrains will are very very efficient right now, but they're going they're going to be better. Whether that means they're going to be internal or external shifting, I don't I don't know. Are we still going to have chains? Who knows? Uh, probably there's going to be something better that that be that gets developed. Um, again, tire wheel technology is gonna is gonna keep going. Um, you know, right now the impact resistance of carbon could be a lot better and I'm sure it will be. And it's, you know, something we've been looking into and we will continue to. And so there, you're just going to keep, keep seeing these, these, these changes. Now, what, you know, what a, what a bike looks like in 2050. Wow. I have no, I have no clue, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, one of the things that's gonna, that I think is a, like a freight train that's coming on, that's going to be hard to that's not going to stop is, is also is e-bikes. I think, uh, if you look at what's happened in Europe, um, we've been having a hard time selling high-end bikes in Europe. Um, and I think part of the part of, because everybody's buying e-bikes over there and it's, if you go riding over there, it's like, wow, you know, where are the, where are the pedal bikes anymore? Um, it's been just embraced fully over there and it's, I don't know what the stats are, but you know, of, if you look at bikes sold over five thousand dollars, there's, I think you'll find that there's probably a lot more e-bikes than than um, you know mechanical bikes being being sold over there, and um, that I think that's a something that obviously you know people are are paying attention to and 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 just seeing how that that evolves and it's. Uh, I think part of the reason in Europe it's been so so popular is because, um, you know, the the I was talking about the incremental changes. Bike bikes in the last five years um, have made small changes, but a, I mean, you know, a number of incremental changes. But um, a bike from three or four or five years ago is still a pretty good bike compared to something from twenty years ago. And so a lot of people are not upgrading every year to the latest greatest, but they are instead going to an e-bike for something, you know, a completely different experience. You know, like I said earlier, the Ritmo is a perfectly great bike. The Ritmo 2 just came out, and um, I think probably a lot of people who have their their original Ritmos are probably will keep them and, and move into an e-bike at some point. So um, so anyway, I think that, that that's something I don't really 
know where that category is going to go, but I think it's going to be massive. Yep. Toss to the corner your hat as like the Ibis guy and just go to looking for an answer for you just as a cyclist, as a passionate cyclist. What do you personally find most intriguing about e-bikes? And do you still have things that, again, just you personally give you pause or if anything? I think it's a really, really complicated um, subject <laughs> to, uh, to tackle. Um, I, I have, have certainly ridden e-bikes and they're a lot of fun. I, I totally get it. I, I personally do like to earn my turns. Um, and, uh, you know, I backcountry ski instead of resort ski. That's just kind of the guy I am. Right. And so I, I think that, uh, I would like to keep riding personally. I'd like to keep riding, um, bikes under my own power for as long as I can. Uh, one of my neighbors here in, in Santa Rosa is a, is a fit older cyclist. And I remember I took him on an 80 mile road ride on his 80th birthday a few wow. years ago. And it's like, that's the guy I want to be, you know? Yep. And, um, and so I, I, I do think that there are many, many places where, where, e-bikes make a lot of sense you know when uh another good friend of mine goes out and rides with his you know 80 year old dad and they ride at the same speed now that his dad has an e-bike you know and that's mm -hmm. that's kind of cool there's people with heart problems there's people you know there, there's there's a, a million scenarios for why people might want to uh to ride one yep. and they're 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 legit um, I, another one is like a lot of people, you know, throw bikes in the back of a pickup and shuttle up to the top of a mountain and, uh, you know, uh, e-bikes can mitigate some of that. Yep. So there, that, that's like a, you know, you could look at it from the, 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 the green standpoint of, of that, of keeping people out of, you know, big, big giant pickups, um, riding to the top of the hill. Another side of it is is access. Um, you know, they, they have motors on them and people who don't like bicycles or don't like motorcycles, um, recognize that and can use that against us. And I worry about access for mountain bikes in general. Um, if, uh, if e-bikes become a very, very popular, um, thing out on the trails. Uh, there, it's nice that they're quiet, you know, that's, that's really good. And so I just, I just have a concern about that and I'm, and maybe, maybe it will be addressed. Maybe it's not going to be an issue, but I am concerned that with the advent of lots of e-bikes on the trail, um, we could be, we could, we could be kept out of, um, some, some, trail riding opportunities that, that we, we now have. This is just something, um, you know, if, if, if I guess I'm apparently in blister 1.0, <laughs> we've, we've got nine years under our belt here. Um, I'm fascinated by this idea of Ibis 1.0 running for, you know, 20 ish years and then getting the reboot 
in 2005, I can't, that's something I can't even sort of fathom or wrap my head around. But I guess I'm just interested in hearing about the decision to sort of fire Ibis back up or, you know, you could have just started a different company, right? And I'm interested in all of that. And to make this an even worse question, uh, I'm really interested in kind of the release of the Carbon Mojo as being a really significant, I don't know, seems like from my perspective, a really significant founding moment of IBIS 2.0. So with what is probably the worst question anyone's ever asked you and the most convoluted, <laughs> I'm just going to stop talking now. <laughs> it's quite easy for me to uh, take that question and hopefully make make a, uh, a co <laughs> something coherent <laughs> make out of lemonade it. out of lemons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what happened, um, I, I sold the company in, in 2000 and it's a long story, but the people I sold it to bankrupt it in by 2002 and 20 months later. So we had run for 20 years and within 20 months they had run it into the ground. Chapter seven too, you know, liquidation, not, um, not chapter 11. So at the same time, um, that this was happening, my now partner Hans Heim had just left Santa Cruz bicycles and Hans joined Santa Cruz one month after its founding and was very instrumental in building it up to being, uh, you know, the amazing brand that it is. So, so 10 years after, after he joined, uh, Hans left Santa Cruz. And this happened within a month or so of the uh, IBIS uh, bankruptcy uh, being declared by the, the people who bought it from me. So Hans called me and said, what's up with IBIS? And I told him the saga and he engineered, um, you know, we worked on it together, but he engineered a way to get the name back from the, uh, the creditors um, who, uh, who basically had, had, you know, received the name uh, in, in the bankruptcy um, filing. So, so Hans, as he told me, it's like, I'm not done yet. And, you know, he'd left Santa Cruz. And he he wanted to he wanted to keep going in the in the industry. He's a very very driven guy, and I'd watched his career um, at Specialized, uh, at Kestrel, at Bontrager, at Santa Cruz, and probably some other places that I can't think of right now. And every place he went, kind of things just turned to gold. And I was really impressed with his uh, his abilities. So um, I was I was burned out and angry and didn't want to come back into the bike industry after this uh, fiasco with the uh, V1 bankruptcy happening. And, uh, but Hans is very persistent and eventually convinced me to come jump back in to the company. And um, he put money into it. I put money into it. Uh, Tom Morgan, who had a long history in the bike industry with I met him first when he worked at REI and um, in a retail store, and then he was at Titec and at Answer and at Giant, and also a very, very sharp guy. So Tom was coming on board, 
And then, so it was Tom and me and Hans, and then we brought Roxy Lowe on board. This was a, another Hans, Hans find was, uh, Roxy didn't, didn't have any, uh, any experience designing bikes. She was working at Pottery Barn at the, at the time. She was an industrial designer and working on kids' toys, I think. And, um, so he, uh, Hans had a vision for, for a carbon fiber bike. And uh, he wanted to build a bike that was dual suspension, that was carbon fiber. And um, it was something that people hadn't been doing yet at the time. But, but road bikes were in a heyday and monocoque carbon fiber technology was, was coming, really coming into the mainstream. And uh, at the same time, Dave Weagle was first on the scene with the DW Link. And so Hans had the vision for this new bike and it was, it was doing things that hadn't been done before. Again, uh, dual suspension, carbon mountain bike hadn't been done and long travel efficient suspension hadn't been done. This first bike was 140 mil rear wheel travel. And it was, it, it was before we had enduro and it was before we had, um, you know, trail bikes, essentially, it was, it was kind of the, the beginning of the, of the trail bike era, I would say. And another thing that was, was very interesting about the bike is that, um, the, and this is where Roxy comes in, is that, that with the advent of carbon fiber, now we didn't have to, um, build bikes out of tubes, um, you know, engineers were kind of the designers of, of bikes. And so there was lots of triangles because triangles are very strong. And with the advent of, of carbon fiber and of also computer technology and things like finite element analysis, you're able to um, not have to adhere to, as Hans called it, the tyranny of tubes. And you could, you know, we all, bikes, bikes then were kind of form follows function. So, so you had lots of triangles and we built with tubes and bikes kind of all looked uh, somewhat similar. So we, we hired Roxy to design a bike and have no preconceived notions about what a bike should look like or, or what it should be. And we came out with this gorgeous bike called the Mojo. There was 2000 hours of CAD time to design this first bike. Tremendous amount of, of design time. And it started with Roxy's two dimensional sketches. And then we brought it into the computer and, and brought it into three dimensions and she guided us the whole way. And, and the, the first Mojo was born in 2005. And I think one of the, one of the great things that that happened was that when Hans left Santa Cruz, he had a non-compete and and at the same time we secured the Ibis name back. So we had this really pretty luxurious development time of, uh, nearly three years to build this bike. And, and it, it really set the course for how we do bike design. Now, uh, it takes a long time for us to come out with a new bike. And, uh, you know, we were, we've been late to the game on some things, but, but when we did w- did jump in, um, the bikes have been very, very, 
very successful and they've had a they've had a you know instead of having like you um you look at the original mojo those molds lasted for something like six years which is kind of unheard of and uh, it's because we spent so much time developing the bike in the first place so um uh, and i i haven't mentioned yet another partner who came in uh colin hughes is our director of engineering and he was in very early on uh, on ibis v2 and um he and roxy were both headhunted by some unnamed bigger manufacturers in the uh, in the bike industry but so we had colin um purchase some of the shares of the company so he is also an owner so we have we have five owners it's it's tom hans myself roxy and colin uh we own 100 percent of the shares of the company we don't have any outside investment at all it's just us and uh we really like it this way <laughs> it's a it's a it's a great great little company um We've grown dramatically. We're up to 33 or 34 employees now, and we were probably at 15 uh, two years ago. Um, And uh, yeah, things are are really busy. Our uh, our growth is is phenomenal. Um, We uh, on in our in our 30. Let's see, we're in our 39th year, so our 37th year. I think we we grew. uh, what then what's the it was like 30 i think our revenue grew 30 percent or something like that which is dramatic last year i think we i think we grew 55 percent or something like that just just remarkable amount of growth and um so yeah it's a wild ride right now but um and i think i think it's the the growth is because we you know the the bikes are really hitting high points um you know that they've as i as i mentioned earlier in this in this interview um we're already sold out till august on some of the some of the new ripmos that came out 2 days ago uh the ripley we saw similar similar things and you know by the way the ripley last year when we came out with that we quadrupled orders you know quadruple production of the prior ripley and we were still sold out that far in advance so We've been receiving some strong votes of confidence from our, from you know, from from the people buying the bikes out the the end user, but also from our dealers. Um, we just we don't we don't do any direct sales. We only sell through dealers and through distributors throughout the throughout the world, and uh, they've been they've been fantastic advocates for uh, for us, and we we try to take really good care of them. So that's that's the quick that's the quick little you know how kind of v2 started and um it's uh you know we have a we have a very strong engineering team a number of we have a you know quite a few engineers on staff and uh working furiously on all sorts of very exciting new products that i'm not going to talk about (laughs) it's so interesting to hear you talk about almost 40 years of being at this and to hear you talk about the growth that's happening just within the last sort of two years, two or three years. And it, you know, I'm definitely, definitely somebody that who believes in the long game. I'm just not interested in like any of the articles on like, this is how you 10x growth in six months. It's like, screw off. Like, you know, like anybody kind of interested in the like, 
ignition quick fix thing. I I just don't have anything in common with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And don't don't like your long term chances actually. Right. But I would be fascinated to hear you talk about like in hindsight. Like, say again, you, you talked about it a little bit, but I'd love to hear you sort of circle back on why you think it's been with doing this for 40 years and coming out with this carbon mojo in, what, 2005, you are not describing a linear march, right, in terms of growth. You're talking about a hockey stick trajectory in the last couple of years. Are you? Do you look back and think, man we should have had better or more marketing efforts earlier on? Or are you like, wow, it was just years of being at it and going at it and finally the market is coming around and discovering us? Anything along those lines that you would identify, you personally would put your finger on to uh, explain the more recent growth? Well, there, first of all, the, I have no regrets about where we've been over the last yeah. 40 years. You know, I, we we um, were in it for the long game, like you said. Um, people ask us, what's your exit strategy? And, you know, because that's, that's the buzzword these days. You know, you're yeah. going to build your company and sell it and, you know, buy an island somewhere. Um, <laughs> that's not, that's not our, that's not our goal. You know, we, we like... Um, providing good employment for our employees. We like what we're doing. We're excited to go to work every day. And to us, that's the most fulfilling thing there is. Our exit strategy is death. You know, that's when we're going to, that's when we'll be done. And so um, that, that's really what drives us as a company. Um, As for this growth, I think, I think we've, we have, we, we are making, very strong efforts to to um, to grow right now. We we think we're leaving. Um, we have we have we have we could have done a lot more sales over the last few years than we did. Again, no regrets, but we are we are making an effort, a really strong effort to um, to we've we've inc- dramatically increased production. Part of it has been. You know, our engineering team is super tight. The the different manufacturers that we're working with are are fan are phenomenal, and we've gotten into some some of the new factories uh, in Asia that that we've had a there's there's gatekeepers, and we've we've been blocked from getting into certain factories, and uh, there's you know there's whole political uh, game that's that gets played over there, and. Uh, I I don't I don't want to go into any details on it, but it's not as easy as you might think. And uh, so so anyway, it's been a combination of things. It's been a combination of, you know, getting the right employees in the right jobs at IBIS and of, you know, the 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 engineering team and Roxy just doing a spectacular job making the bikes beautiful and desirable and function, you know, the best functioning bikes that we can possibly make out there. Um, taking really good care of our dealers. Our sales team is really tight. Um, we pay attention to our customers. We're in, you know, we have long, long, long time relationships with, with, uh, with our, uh, with our dealers out there. We take really good care of them. 
so I, you know, it's a combination of, of all those things that's, that's leading to that, that uh, kind of hockey stick growth that we're seeing out there. And I think, and also, you know, just like taking a little bit, a little bit bigger of a gamble on, on that our products are going to, going to hit the, the high notes that people want to see in their, in their modern, modern bikes. Um, you know, there's more at stake now, you know, <laughs> but, uh, so far we, you know, knock on wood, we haven't made any, any big major, major faux pas. And I think, I think there, you know, we have a certain confidence in our ability to see where the market is going. I mean, you have to look, you have to look two, three years in advance of where we are right now. So we're, we're working on stuff that's, you know, way ahead of, uh, where we are, you know, the yeah. bikes that we're doing right now. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's challenging. It's if, you know, it's not easy. Uh, we have, we have tremendous, tremendous respect for the, the, all of the people building that, you know, that we're competing against out there, you know, the, the people like, like Santa Cruz and Yeti and Pivot and, and people like that who are just, man, they're building good bikes in there. And then there's a bunch of, you know, smaller upstart companies who are just kicking ass as well. So, um, you know, the, the evils and the transitions and, and people like that, just, man, hats off to everybody. And it is so golden age for the consumer, for sure, because all of these, all of these choices that they have are, are, are amazing, you know? It's uh, you can I mean, if you build a bad bike, you're going to go out of business. There's, there's just yep. no, you know, that's all there is to it. And that the consumer is the, the beneficiary of, of that. I want to let you get going here. Um, but before we do, I want to ask a little bit about these Ibis migrations. I, I guess, you, you know, you could look back to those first Crested Butte trips and, and, uh, you know, where we, where it was like an an earlier migration of of friends back to amazing places to ride bikes, so we we for the last few years have been doing these uh, events called Ibis Migrations, and it's just where a bunch of us get together and ride. And kind of the marquee event is one that takes place up in up in Mendocino, California. And something we didn't talk about was I first started. Build well. I did mention that I was living up in Mendocino when I when I uh, w- talked about the early days of riding with Joe and and Gary and Charlie and all those guys. And anyway, there's a, a place called the Mendocino Woodlands up in Mendocino that is deep in the redwoods, and it was a uh, built by the CCC in the 30s, and it's got a bunch of bunch of cabins, rustic cabins made out of redwood. And there is phenomenal trails everywhere up there. There were some great trails back in in seventy eight, seventy nine, eighty, eighty one, when I was when I was riding there and just getting Ibis started. But uh, there's a group of dedicated people up there now who have been just doing a tremendous amount of trail building. So, and it's kind of hard to find a lot of the trails. You're so deep in the trees that a lot of the trail forks, you know, uh, can, uh, trails don't really connect and, and there's no signage or anything like that. So it really benefits from having a guide. And so what we do is we, we go up there and we spend, um, oh, three nights and three days up there. Uh, we cook great meals. We have fun at night. We have just 
just you know we have a bunch of guides to guide us around the forest and uh, it's just it's just become a really really fun few days and it just gets better and better every year it's about a hundred of us do it we, we have with staff about 120 people show up and uh, I've done I've done other migrations um, in other locations as well I've got a bunch of them that I'm working on uh, but they haven't uh, 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 the first one we did up in the LaSalle mountains above above Moab and that was great we did one in St. George Utah uh, we did one back in Pisgah, and then all the rest of them have been here in uh, in Mendocino. And um, right now, that's the only one that's on the schedule. I'm actually going to announce it on the website, start taking uh, entries here in the next few days. Uh, but it happens uh, the third weekend, third weekend of August uh, every every year up in Mendocino, and it's really it's a really 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 fun event, and. Um, you know, you don't have to. You don't have to be on an ibis to come to one of these. We're not. We're not exclusive in that we exclude people. <laughs> you know, we we. You know, if you got a Santa Cruz or a Yeti, yeah, you can still come up and hang out with us. Of course, it's mostly ibises, which is nice. But uh, but <laughs> it's uh, they're they're really they're they're fun events, and it's really nice to spend time with with our you know the with our customers out there, and uh, and they they enjoy it too. So those are. Those, those, that's been one of my pet projects these last few years is putting, putting those, those together. Well, very cool. Um, Scott, I've really enjoyed this. Um, man, we started by talking about uh, a new release, you know, that was announced 48 hours ago. And then we rolled our way through 40 years of mountain bike history <laughs> and your history and Ibis's history. I feel like we, I feel like we covered some good ground today. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, I'm sure <laughs> there's a lot there. I'm sure when we when I listen to this, uh, I'm gonna th- remember like 50 things that I wish I would have mentioned. But uh, you know, when there's 40 years of history back there, you're not gonna mention it all in an hour plus podcast, obviously. So, well, I'll, I'll make you a deal. This has been so much fun that uh, when you listen to this, you just jot down all the things you forgot to mention. And uh, I, I can envision a, you know, a round two in our future. Um, I, think, I think you and I probably would have some things to talk about uh, that we didn't quite get to today. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, that would be, be really fun. And it's, um, it's honestly just a real pleasure um, to kind of get your perspective on this stuff and um, to, to, to touch on a lot of these things. And, yeah, maybe that is where we'll go with round two, just get a chance to dive deeper down the rabbit holes of uh, – some of these really interesting portions of history that you have been involved with and that you're still shaping. So, um, pretty good. I think, I think you've done pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a lucky guy and that is not lost on me. You know, it's, uh, I've, I've been very, very fortunate in my life and, uh, very thankful that, uh, things have turned out the way they've they've turned out. I mean, I'm not a rich guy or anything, but my, my, I have a rich life, you know, it's really, it's, it's really, really good. Um, one, one other, just like super brief. Um, I, I don't know if you went through and looked at our website and, uh, and un, under our story, there's a history Yeah. and there's anyway, there's, there's, um, there's a bunch of stories that I wrote, uh, about the early history of Ibis and those are fun to read. 
And then also we have a Who Is Ibis section, which show, you know gives shows you all the people that work here. And it's kind of it's a super quick, easy, fun read, and you can see the people who make who make Ibis what it is. Uh, you know, it takes a village, and they're phenomenal, phenomenal people working here. It's really it's really incredible. We're really lucky, and I mean, a lot of them are our employees have been with us for a long, long time. And that feels feels really good. So you can get a little bit of a bit more of it, you know. If you do, if you're not completely bored by this last hour, or whatever <laughs> of your life being taken away from you, you can dive in deeper <laughs> on our website. Yeah, and I will definitely vouch. It is super entertaining and informative. So yeah, check out the the history page of the Ibis website. Well, hey, on that, Scott, um, again, uh, this has been fun, and um, we'll wrap up for now, but uh, we, we should do this again sometime. Sounds good. I'm game. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All, All right. right. Well, listen, you take care. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you enjoyed this conversation, we would love it if you would subscribe to the Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, share this episode with your friends, and take just 30 seconds to leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes, since that really helps the cause. I want to say thanks to Scott Nickel for the conversation, thanks to Jared Farley for producing this episode, and of course, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, please take good care out there. We will talk to you again next week.